this is probably one of the most familiar passages if you've grown up in any sort of um, Protestant church or evangelical church. What can separate us from the love of God? And uh, uh, admittedly, there is good reason for uh, its repetition and focus. I think it's a phenomenal chapter. The scriptures are are all wonderful. Every every book, every chapter, it has extreme value. But in my mind, I can't think of a more uh, concise uh, place in the New Testament that talks about a very vital issue for our hearts as believers, whether young or old. In my mind, there's there's no place that I could turn to 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 argue about how do you know uh, you are saved other than this chapter. Uh, I mean, you could go to 1 John, but there's five chapters there. And this chapter, it's just 40 verses that really hammer home. How do we know that we're saved? How do we know what God has done for us? And, and why do we have that confidence? And this is very, very important to us um, as believers. There are people today, right now, this is the Eastern Standard Time Zone, or, or Eastern Daylight time zone, whatever. We're, we're at the beginning of Sunday morning, and for the rest, for the next few hours, both earlier than now and, and later than now, hundreds and hundreds of people will be in churches, thousands and thousands, probably millions and millions of people in the United States will be in church. And some of those people uh, believe that they are right with God, and yet their hearts are completely far away from him. Now, that is a, a terribly uh, devastating reality if those people are not confronted with the truth of the gospel. How do we know this to be the case? <clears throat> Jesus said to the Pharisees that they were a brood of vipers. Now, why are they a brood of vipers? Well, in the, in the garden, Satan took on the form of a serpent and deceived Eve and, and Adam together. And so this is the primary connotation of snakes throughout the, the scriptures. There's good snakes, that is the bronze serpent in the wilderness, which uh, foreshadowed Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples to be as wise as serpents. But then there are evil snakes. And, and those evil snakes are cunning and crafty. They crouch and they slither across the ground and they creep into any open cracks in your life. And so this, this idea that Jesus is calling the religious leaders of their day, a brood of vipers tells us that even the leaders in the church back then had, uh, had extreme issues with uh, authenticity. They, they had a whole religious following of individuals in Judaism at the time who were following people that Jesus called sons of the devil and a brood of vipers, a nest of vipers that makes more snakes to do the work of, of the evil one. And so this is, it's certain that there can be a mixture in churches. And, and what I mean by that is people can show up, people can even be a member or, or live with other believers for a very long time, and yet they're hypocrites. They, they speak the things of God, they, they communicate uh, as if they uh, value scripture or they've learned a few verses, and yet their hearts are far away from God. They maybe even can tell you the gospel, yet they're still trusting in their own righteousness and in their own works to produce salvation or to produce uh, a disposition in God that is favorable to them. They're not really actually trusting Christ. They're trusting in their own efforts, and, and they're appeasing their conscience by doing some sort of religious devotion that is attending church or, or something like that. And so, how <clears throat> this is a, a terrible situation to be in, and and when people are first presented with that idea, they if you're a young believer or old believer, you may be wondering, what what about me? Hey, if if there were religious leaders who were actually followers of Satan, how do I know that I'm not self-deceived? And so. Uh, this is a scheme of the evil one to, to convince people that they are right with God, but they're not actually right with God, and they have no justification or legal argument for why they believe they are redeemed. 
And so we're not to be ignorant of, of the enemy's schemes. And one of the ways that we ensure we are not deceived is through the doctrine of, of what most Protestants call assurance. Now, assurance does not mean insurance. It's very similar. Insurance is something you buy to protect against damage or loss. Assurance is confidence in something that already exists. <clears throat> so um, if you have ever heard of quality assurance, that's, that is a group of people in a factory manufacturer. Sydney actually does this job, and his job is to test particular chemical samples. I'm, this is the thousand-foot view of what he does. Particular chemical samples to make sure they're in the right proportion of all the different ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. And so assurance, then, is the understanding that, yes, you are indeed a child of God. Now, how does that happen for us, and, um, and, and how are we assured that we really do belong to God? Well, Paul, in this letter to the Romans, provides a basis, a, a, set, of, a set of arguments, uh, connected truths, if you will, that provide the basis for how do we know that we're saved? How do we know uh, that we actually are children of God? And so this knowledge of salvation is, is extremely important, not just to know that you are uh, actually a believer, and you're not deceived, that is extremely important to get that settled, but also the, commu- the, the things that are communicated to your heart through, the, through assurance that comes by the Holy Spirit are extremely beneficial in both your confidence before God, to know that God is a good God and He's favorably disposed to you, and in your ability to share the Word with others. The goal, uh, we, we, we stress this, probably the most unique uh, idea in this church concerning the fivefold ministry is that you do not have all aspects of the fivefold ministry. You are not like part evangelist, 10% apostle, 50% prophet. No, those are offices, those are delegations that God the Father has, has given over to men in the church, and those people execute offices in an administrative way, so as to do what? For the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry. The goal of every uh, teaching in this church, but what my dad did earlier uh, in Sunday school, what I'm doing now, is to form and and persuade and embolden you in, in order that you will do the work of the ministry. Every believer is called to do the work of the ministry. And so if you don't know for certain that you are saved, if you don't know for certain the gospel and what it means uh, that Jesus died on the cross and, and that you are trusting in his work instead of your own, if you're not fully confident, like 110% sure, uh, infinitely sure, that you are a believer, that God really has washed you from your sins, that you really are justified when you come before the Father, then you will have no power in preaching the gospel. And I'd, I'd even go so far as to say that some of, our, uh, some of us, we, we have issues with the fear of man, and so we're nervous to share with people. But I think part of the, uh, another huge hindrance to sharing the gospel is that we actually do not know how we know we are saved. And so that's what, that's what the doctrine of assurance is for. And so in this study, we're going to look at uh, five different areas. The first thing that we're going we're gonna to do is look at the Trinitarian nature of salvation. This is something I, I try to talk to, you know, speak to uh, a lot, is that God, uh, the way that God has saved individuals is not just uh, through Jesus the Son, and, and he did it all, and, and that's where it ends. Uh, the entire Godhead was in, involved in your uh, coming to, to know him, and so we're going to look at how that, that actually works. We're going to look at what Paul says are two competing laws. He says the law of the flesh, or the law of sin and death, and the law of the spirit of life. And we're going to look at those two different laws and what that actually means. We're going to look at how those laws are connected to a way of thinking, what people usually mean when they say the word mindset. 
We're going to look at the idea of future grace. That is, we do not just have faith for now that we are justified before the Father, but that one day we will be ultimately, finally justified, and how those are connected to how we were saved. That is, the whole, uh, the members of the Trinity were involved in our past justification, and they are involved in our current justification, or how we know we are saved, that is assurance, and that that because of those things, they will be involved in our future uh, justification on the last day. And then we're going to really uh, dive into the divine witness. This is the goal of, of our talk today, is to look at how the Holy Spirit is involved in communicating assurance to us. Um, right now at RCF, they're actually going through a set of teachings on the Holy Spirit. So I don't, I'm not attempting to steal Jason's thunder. I'm, I'm meaning to compliment and uh, expand or, or touch on another area of who the Holy Spirit is specifically just to assurance, because he's going to talk about fruit, character, forming the church, emboldening us for witnessing, etc. all of those various things. But specifically, I, I think we do neglect as believers because of our uh, Western mindset um, we do neglect the role of the Holy Spirit in communicating assurance. So that's really our goal today. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, we're going to look at uh, the hopeful perspective that assurance communicates to us. Um, at the end of the reading, you heard this huge litany of things that can't keep us from the love of God. Life, death, angels, powers, things present, things in the future, any created thing, Hell itself cannot keep us from the love of God. Why is Paul so confident to say that? It's because he has complete assurance. And so, so it's important for us to, to know how we know. So uh, the first element that I want to talk about today is this idea of Trinitarian salvation or the Trinitarian nature of salvation. When many people hear the gospel in the United States today, they're presented with this uh, basic summary— God created the world, the world fell, and then God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place to pay the penalty for your sins, and if you trust in his name, you will be saved. Amen. That is the gospel in about 15 seconds. Uh, but what is often neglected is the fact that God himself, all the members of the Trinity, were involved in the actual execution and effecting of that plan of salvation. As in, that was the redemptive plan that Jesus would come, but it's not just Jesus acting alone. It's not like the Father and the Son got together and decided, hey, we're going to like coerce the Spirit to come afterwards, after Jesus dies, to help out all the people he died for. You know, it's, it's not as if God the Father like lost a thumb war with Jesus, and one of them was going to have to come and it just turned out to be, uh, or he won the, the thumbnail. You know, it, it is not at all just some willy-nilly Jesus acting on his own. There is complete unity among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is how we know uh, we have come to God. God did not, uh, there was no division or disunity in the Godhead. And it is not our invention that we have just kind of vicariously applied our problem to a historical event of Jesus dying on the cross. That is, I'm, I'm trying to say that Jesus died on the cross, and that's a historical event. And, and that really happened in a time and a place outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, approximately. But we didn't just kind of hijack that and then build a doctrine of salvation. Paul here says that there was a complete uh, unity in the work of God to bring you into that reality of, of Jesus's atonement. And so the question then is, are we attempting to, to come to God on our own, or did he really orchestrate this? That really is the basis of assurance. You know, there's, there's different views on how people come to God. Some people say, I, I'm a seeker of truth, and they're, they're actually a liar, according to the scriptures. According to the scripture, there is no one who seeks for God, no, not one. They have all turned away. They, they, their lips are like the, the mouths of adders, and they breathe out and spew out poison. And they're, they're just children of, of the devil. They're liars. 
And, and the scripture says that, that they do not seek for God, but that God's came, uh, God came to seek for us. And that, that is what Jesus did through the incarnation and what God did through the, the shaping and forming of Israel. So Jesus' death on the cross, therefore, is not the single activity in the Godhead that affects your salvation. Now, some of you may think that, you know, hey, whoa, that seems like you're putting, uh, you're dishonoring the work of Christ. No, it is not dishonoring to the work of Jesus Christ to say that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were involved in bringing us into the uh, reality that is behind the work of Jesus on the cross. It's not dishonoring at all. And in fact, Scripture, especially the New Testament, constantly puts forth a picture of a Trinitarian symphony of involvement in our coming to know God. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Paul Paul goes into experience to examine this extreme complex activity in regards to our ascension. And, and one of the ways he does this, I'm again, um, I'm, I'm, I wish I was a literary major because I think it would have, would have actually helped me more as a pastor than my computer science degree. But, um, but Paul does something here. That's a unique thing in scripture. Uh, you can see it in various places. But it is a literary technique that helps emphasize a progression or a unity. In music, there's this idea of crescendo and decrescendo. Uh, we do that a lot in, in the way that we play music here. We build, we build, we build, we build, and then explosion of sound, and then a decrescendo. And so there's a ramp up and volume and then a ramp down. This is what Paul does in a literary uh, analogy. There is a uh, progression of men of the spirit of God and then there is a uh, uh, an adding to that from Jesus Christ and then a central point of God's work and then he references Jesus again and then mentions the spirit again and so that this is known as a chiastic structure or a chiasm and it, it happens whenever um, in literature you mention a point a point B point C and then B and then a or you could do, AA, BB, BB, AA, something like that. It's all over the Psalms. It's all over everywhere in the scripture. But you can think of it like this. It's kind of like a literary hamburger, okay? You've got a bun. Um, if you make your hamburger the way I do, I put ketchup on both sides of the bun because I just, I like ketchup. So bun, toppings, burger, toppings, bun. That's the way I make my hamburgers. Uh, that's what, that's what uh, another way to think of a chiastic structure. But here the chiasm is, is very clear. It's the law of the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit's involved. The freedom that is in Christ, the Son is involved. God, his activity, and when Paul usually in these chapters mentions God, he's specifically referring to the Father. And then he mentions again after God's activity comes the Son's incarnation and walking in the Spirit. So there's this complex symphony of involvement. There's a, there is a speaking together, as it were, of, of God that is involved in your salvation. Romans 8, 2 through 4, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. How has it set you free? Because you were in Jesus Christ. And then what happens? For God has done what the law could not do. So this is the work of God the Father. God the Father has done this for you, and you have uh, been a partaker of it because he has done this through the Spirit, because he's united you to Christ. And then it goes on to say, how did he do it? The sending of his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, so that's the idea of the incarnation, and then finally, in order that we would not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so God himself is involved in your salvation. This isn't you responding at an altar call because you decided to. God made you alive together with Christ Jesus while you were far away from him. And so that is the basis of your assurance, is a correct view on how you were saved. If you believe that you, you sought after God on your own, then you can doubt that. If you believe, however, and know to be true that God himself came after you, and, and, and put, a, put a, aside every limitation and broke open uh, every barrier to reach you, 
That is, through the sending of his son in the likeness of your frame, so that he could pay a true penalty and be a true high priest, as the book of Hebrews argues, that that is the basis of your salvation, not your response at an altar call, not your response to a tract on the street. So that's really the basis of, that's the, the foundation of assurance. And Paul's word choice and, and uh, his structure tells us that the plan of salvation is based on the perfect foundation of love, unity, charity, felicity, meekness, and overall fellowship and cooperation of the Spirit of God and the, and the Father and the Son. And, and so God, God himself is involved in your salvation. And so that is our foundation. Building upon that is this idea of two competing laws. This isn't the first time, or this isn't the only place, rather, that, that Paul talks about two ways to live. He talks about it in Galatians, and he, he, he makes an analogy between uh, the child of the bondwoman and the child of the free woman. And he basically is saying this, there's two ways to live. You can live uh, according to the law of the flesh, that is, uh, you're captive to your own desires, you, um, you live and, and, and think out of the, the rationality of your own way of believing, thinking, and you're a law unto yourself. You are your own functional God. And so that's the law of, of the flesh or the law of sin and death. And, and then he says there's another way to live. There's a, there's a way to live in the law of the spirit of life. Now that sounds kind of funny. Because when we, we talk about law, it's usually a dichotomy between the law as we know the old covenant to be and the law of Christ, or that is to love your neighbor as yourself and to put no, you know, to love God uh, and to have no gods before him. But they're really the same law. And they really are what Paul is saying is the law of the spirit of life. That is the law that comes from God, not the law that imposes regulations and, and cannot be done by you, but rather an inward knowing, an inward writing of God's law upon your heart. And so there's, there's two ways to live, he says. So the question is for us, if we're to answer, how do we know we're saved? Then the question is one of soul searching. What is the foundational law or functional law of my life? You know, we, we talk about um, idols a lot, and you and I, uh, I, I know for certain, I, well, I don't know for certain about your living room, but I know for certain there is no bail in my living room set up. There's no totem pole. There's no Asherah pole, right? I'm not an idol worshiper in the sense of the, the history that took place in the old covenant, but there are functional idols. That is things that you set up in your life that are your functional God. And they're not, they're not like figurines they're not, you know, statues or objects of devotion that you've that you've started to worship. They are they are things in your life that you're exalting before God. Remember, everything in the Old Covenant scriptures is a shadow, a pattern, a type to point forward to a true reality. And what was happening in the Old Covenant and, and still happens worldwide today is people make physical objects to represent a spiritual reality behind them, and then they bow down at those and call them idols or gods, and they're not gods at all. You and I, we can do the same. We can have functional idols, true spiritual problems, things that we've placed in, in front of God in our lives that don't have any uh, outward physical idol, you know, statue thing. I, um, I, Anecdotally, I had a, a very funny experience uh, coming back. I went to Europe when I was in high school, and I brought back a um, a figurine that was a, a part of a building that they had, and it was like a souvenir. And uh, not understanding that you could um, not actually be tainted or, you know, Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing, Right. And we know that meat sacrificed to idols does not corrupt. But out of the conscience uh, and respect for our brothers, we don't parade those around. And so after having bought this little $4, well, euro, 450 euro uh, item, just four bucks, uh, I then brought it home and then was convicted when I was watching some ridiculous uh, show later, a few weeks after that, and I decided to break it. Now, I was not bowing down at that little 
tiny uh, Pegasus thing. Uh, it was merely a souvenir of my trip. It was not an actual idol. But you don't need actual idols to make idols in your life. So, you know, don't go home and, and smash your coffee table if it looks like, you know, if it's got a lion on the side of it or something. That's not what I'm saying. Functional idols do not necessarily need a physical manifestation, even though they can have those things. And some tribes or people groups around the world, uh, they still do bow down to objects of devotion, and they really are idols and should be destroyed. But you don't need a physical thing to have an idol. So the question is, what is the functional, who is the functional God of your life? Is it the spirit or is it your own, your own mind? Is it the flesh? And so believers are those who are walking in the spirit of life. They're not attempting to do the law. They are walking in the law. They are doing it already. Now, do I mean by that complete, perfect fulfillment of all the law that was found in the Old Covenant scriptures? No. I mean those things which God still requires his, his people to do. And so we've been trained by the Spirit and are now free from what is called the law of spirit or the law of sin and death. So the, the, the test is this: Are you attempting to be righteous? Do you if you examine your motivations and your, your ways of life, are you attempting to reconcile your life with what you know to be the pattern of a believer in Scripture, or are those things happening because you're following the Spirit? Now, that's a hard distinction to make, and that's why it's sometimes helpful to get counsel from brothers and sisters in the Lord. But the question remains, are you attempting to justify yourself before God, or are you resting in your current justification and doing the works of God as an overflow of walking with him and, and hearing his word? So Romans 8, 5 through 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This is where we're getting into mindsets. Mindsets indicate whether we're walking in the law of sin and death or the law of the spirit. Are you setting your minds on material goods? Are you setting your mind on your status socially with people? Like how many friends you have and how many retweets you got last week and, and how many times, you know, you, you were able to like buy that new car, that new, you know, piece of clothing or go out to a restaurant, are you, are you setting your, your thoughts on the, the things that are passing away, right? Are you setting your thoughts on, I really hope that other person likes me, rather than, I really hope I do right by this person and treat them with love, right? Desiring to be loved by men will always lead you to uh, serving man, but Desiring to be loved by God, knowing that you already are loved by God, will lead you to a place in life where you are able to love other man, men. And, and so what I'm trying to say is the, the mindset that you have indicates what law you're walking in. If you're constantly setting your minds on things that are temporal, things that are merely uh, uh, carnal or that is you know mundane, and by mundane I mean worldly, um, things that are passing away, if that is all you're thinking about, that is a strong indicator that you are operating in the law of sin and death. You're, you're not setting your mind on the things that are above. Verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Is your life ruled by peace? Are, are you constantly moving into uh, or moving in and out of peace concerning who God is, who you are as his child, what he wants you to do with your life. And now, by that, I don't mean, do you occasionally sin in anxiety? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, are you currently setting your mind, your time, your everything, your to-do list, all of your life, is that set on justifying yourself and doing what you think God requires you to do, or are you trying to just love your neighbor? And, and are you walking in love? <clears throat> for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It, Paul is saying you can never operate in, this, in the law of sin and death and in the mindset that is set on the flesh and ever please God. It's impossible. It's not even that if you tried 
good enough or hard enough that you could get around to, to fulfilling God's righteous requirement, he says that you cannot do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So your mindset reveals your functional law. That is, what is the thing that is directing your life? Are you directing your life? Are you executing on your own, your 10-year vision? You know, I used to make these vision goals at the end of each year. I still do it. I think it's great. But you really do need to check yourself. Are you, are you seeking out God's vision for your life, or are you just trying to get the 2.5 kids, the white picket fence, the 2.5 cars, and the flat screen TV? You know, is that what you're trying to do? Now, I'm not against fences. I've got one in my backyard. I'm just saying, are you, are you seeking the American dream or are you seeking God's dream for your life? And that really is merely an indicator. I'm not saying that you need to go uh, break all your stuff. Unless, unless you really need to, go do it. But what I'm saying is that these merely indicate the inner reality that's going on in your heart. Okay. It's not, it's not as, as though you can go and judge your brother based on the way that they live externally. This is something that Paul's arguing about conscience here. So if your thought content and your processes are about carnal and earthly things, then you're living according to, it's a high indication that you're living according to the flesh. That is, you respond to every catastrophe in your life in your own wisdom. And you never even in the moment repent and think, hey, wait, I need to turn to God. I know that God is going to bring everything out for my good, and I need to, to seek his guidance. I need to go to his people and get help from my tribe, etc., etc. That right there, ex- escaping the temptation occasionally to, to worry, to be anxious, that is an indication that you really are seeking after the Lord. Again, these things, if you ever, if you ever make them into totality, or that is, that one time I didn't operate in the spirit, or I responded in the flesh that one day, I, I must not be a believer. That's not what I'm trying to say. But, but if you can search your life and see that your goals are just for your stuff and your life, then that is a pretty big indicator. You may be living according to the, to the flesh. But if you turn from carnal temptations to seek grace from God, it's, it's an indication your mind is really set on the spirit. In the same way, if you look to your own reasoning your mind is set on the flesh, but if you look to the Spirit for wisdom, then your mind is set on the Spirit. In, in how you execute and live and, and operate and walk, if you're constantly looking to your own reasoning, way of thinking, and you never check that against the Holy Spirit, what your conscience may be telling you, what God's Word says about the issue, what your pastor may have to say about the issue, then you are operating in the flesh. So, so that, that being the case, um, the root of, of this discussion on assurance is that you should be able to look in your life and see, I used to, in, when these types of things happened, I used to just respond in my own way, and I used to just do whatever I wanted, and I used to seek after my own goals, and now... Although it, <clears throat> although the black, <clears throat> although the black parts of my life may just be getting gray, and there's a little bit of of light here and there, although it's small at first, I do see fruit of the Holy Spirit in changing the way I think, and and my goals from time to time. Not that you've totally changed completely, and you're a sinless, you know, <laughs> angel walking around in a human body, but but that you are conquering occasionally. And you are seeing the Holy Spirit speak to you and interject his will over and against yours occasionally. That is what I mean by walking according to the Spirit. So not only is our past justification accomplished by God, but also our current way that we walk is being aided by the Holy Spirit. And we know that those two things connected are the basis for our future grace. And what do I mean by future grace? That is, your current justification, that how you know that you are saved, leads you to being sure that you will be raised up on the last day and justified as righteous at the final judgment. Just as our current justification, that is, our, our present uh, salvation, has been accomplished by God the Father, so also 
our, our raising at that last day will take place through a symphony of involvement in the Trinity. Romans 8, 9 through 11, you, however, are not in the flesh. So Paul's, again, my goal in talking about that, whether you're operating in the law or the flesh, Paul's wanting to assure his, his people. He's not wanting to write words that would lead people to doubt their salvation or doubt the goodness of God, but rather he's writing so that they would be affirmed. And he, does, he indicates this by saying, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then he puts a qualifier, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, this is where the assurance, you know, the ax is laid to the root of the tree, and there is a sharpness that God's word brings to our hearts. Paul says, you are indeed in God if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you know, through your experience, through your prayer times, through your reading of the Word, have you really heard the voice of God? Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, although your life still has elements of sin, you still have struggles. You still in, in, go into temptation. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, here is where the Trinitarian uh, unity is important to see. Our past salvation, when we first believed, was accomplished by the Father, the Son, the Spirit. So also, that raising on the last day, which we hope for, will be accomplished by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, okay, now that is enough to get the Trinity. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So there's Jesus the Son, and then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of him who raised Jesus. Him who raised Jesus is God the Father. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul says, if the Spirit of Christ, in verse 8, uh, or sorry, in verse 9, he calls him the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, which indicates the unity among the Godhead. The Holy Spirit can have the name the Spirit of God, and he can have the name the Spirit of Christ, and he's the same, it, it describes the same person, that if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he, God the Father, who raised Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So God will accomplish a raising of the believers on the last day when, the, when Christ returns uh, to judge all of mankind. On that day, God the Father will raise you from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the great hope of Christianity. We're not really uh, focused on just dying and going to heaven. Our real goal, the end of this plan of redemption, is for God to fully restore his creation and that we will walk upon the earth forever, life evermore, with our maker. That is, that is apostolic Christianity. It is not just we die, we go to heaven, we escape fiery hell, and uh, we get our Mercedes and everything else up there. You know, have you ever seen those Philadelphia cream cheese commercials? I hate those commercials. I hate those commercials because they reinforce a stereotype of when we die, you go to heaven or hell, and if you go to heaven, you get everything your way. It sucks. That's a terrible commercial. I hate it. But I hate it because it also reinforces this idea that the end goal of life is just to make it to some cloudy, airy waftiness in the, in the ether up there. The real goal is that you and I will see each other again and we will know all of the previous members of the church and future members of the church, and we will walk with our maker. Yes! Amen. That's the goal. That is the goal of apostolic Christianity. That's the goal of true Christianity. The, the arguments of the New Testament are never focused on dying and going to heaven. One or two times Paul mentions that. But we've turned all of Christianity. I mean, have you ever been at an evangelistic crusade the size of a stadium or even smaller and if you notice at the end, it's always, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd, you'd be? <laughs> well, I'd be in the ground. <laughs> Eventually. So, <clears throat> here the Holy Spirit is referred to the Spirit of the Father and Spirit of Christ. Uh, because we are united to Christ, the Father will raise us on the last day through His Spirit. So this really gets to the divine witness 
Paul has established that redemption, that is the work of Christ in the past, current justification, your present trusting in faith upon Christ's work, and sanctification, that is the progressive outworking of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and future justification, all of those are designed and carried out by God. And now he gives his readers an insight into the source of of confirmation for all that he's just argued about. So he's just asserted all of those things and taught, taught his readers those things. And now he says, how do you know that all those things are really true? You've heard the word of God. Paul has written this letter to, to the Romans, the believers in Rome. How do they know that what he said is really true? Are they just trusting in Paul? Because, you know, Paul, uh, even though he wrote some scripture, still sinned. He was still a man. He still made mistakes. Are you trusting in Paul? No, you're not trusting in Paul. You're not even trusting necessarily, although it is true that we do believe that the scripture is the word of God. Paul's saying you're not just trusting that in 300 years, a few church councils will continue to say that the letter I wrote you is scripture. Okay? Do you see? That's why it's kind of important to know church history. Paul wrote a letter. It arrived in a, by the way of a guy who had a saddlebag, and the letter from Paul was there. And then these believers in the city of Rome were all gathered together, and one of their elders read from Paul's letter a few different times, probably for the rest of their lives, and they just have to take it because the guy showed up and said, Paul wrote this letter? Not at all. Not at all. Although we're not attacking the scripture, Paul says that uh, this, this true witness comes by the way of the Holy Spirit. The true seal on our assurance comes from the tes- testimony of divine witness, not, not Paul's witness. Romans 8, 13 through 15, um, uh, 14 through 17, rather. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Again, uh, that, that's getting back to what I was talking about. Are you doing your own thing? Or are you noticing that your motivations are changing into God's motivations, that your reasonings are changing to basis of Scripture, to, to following what uh, the, the leaders in your life are saying to you? Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. Now, here is how you know that you really uh, need to place your trust in Christ. You're constantly afraid that you actually are saved. If that is the case, you need to simply trust God. Place your trust in Christ. Abandon all hope of reforming your life upon your, your, your own and, and trust the work of Christ and the word of God. And, and so you didn't receive a, a spirit of slavery, so don't, don't live as if you have a spirit of, of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Do you see the Father God as your father? Do you just see him as this nebulous God, or do you see him as your father? This is why I think it's very important to see the Trinitarian aspects of of the plan of redemption and to see them in scripture. Because if you just kind of see Jesus on the cross and God's this thing up in the sky and the spirit is someone who you can encounter if the worship's really good that day, if that is how you see God, you aren't really, you aren't really entering into all that Jesus came to do. In John 17, we talked about this last week. I came to glorify you and to give them your word that's what Jesus is saying. And, and I have done it, and I will glorify it. And I will keep them in your word. That, that's the goal. Jesus' goal in the Our Father is to introduce the children of God to their Father. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the one through whom we know we are the children of God or the sons of God because we cry out, Abba, Father. Not nebulous divine being, possible originator of the universe, Abba Father. You have an intimate relationship with him. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. There's two witnesses there. The witness of is our spirit, and then another witness is the Holy Spirit. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. We don't have time to get into it, but there's that Trinitarian pattern again. 
The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are heirs of who? God the Father. That is your inheritance as a believer, and that you are an heir with Christ. Christ is your brother. You've been brought into a unity with him. And in that new family that you've been invited into, the Spirit is the one who confirms to you that you are really a child of God. First, our consciences, they testify to us concerning all that we've talked about. Our motivation, the way that we think about life, our goals, various aspects of what our, you know, what our desire is, or is our desire to gratify ourselves. Paul, Paul calls uh, unbelievers, those who are manipulating the gospel, those who their God is their belly. Now, I can tell you, I, I get hungry, but, uh, but may it never be said that my God is my belly, right? If you're just constantly focused on fulfilling your needs constantly, so, you know, desires of the heart, charity towards our brothers, joy in God, rest in trusting Jesus, and, and that's, really, uh, that's really our goal. You know, contentment in our estate in life. Paul says if we have food and we have clothing, that'll be enough for us, right? Now, I'm not saying don't take care of your car or your house or whatever. I'm just saying, are you just constantly trying to get to that next rung in the ladder? Because you'll never get to the top, and when you do, you're going you're gonna to fall. Life is not about fulfilling your needs constantly. So our witness comes from, the, from our own conscience, and then, second, the Holy Spirit testifies. Now, how this is specifically accomplished, how the Holy Spirit specifically communicates to your spirit that you are a child of God is beyond the scope of our time and beyond the scope of human ability. But there is a notion that the Holy Spirit witnesses to you, and you somehow know and have this, uh, you have this sense that, that you are really a, a child of God. Some prophets of old have described it as a still small voice. Others today describe it as a sense or the voice of God or an internal quiet peace. Or yet again, whenever you doubt, you, you yet again place your trust in God. That is, should you hear a sermon such as this, begin to examine your life. If you really are truly a child of God, the Holy Spirit will come in that moment and confirm. If you will just put your anxieties away and, and quiet yourself down, you will once again hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, Jesus indeed died for you. Now, this effect is, is extremely hard to describe, um, so I thought it would be helpful uh, to, to bring a quote from John Wesley. This is something he wrote in the sermon called The Witness of the Spirit. He says, The testimony of the Spirit is an inward impression of the soul, whereby the Spirit of God directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus Christ has loved me and has given himself for me, and that all my sins are are blotted out, and I, even I, am reconciled to God. It's an assurance beyond all of your expectations, all of your reasonings, but it is a quiet and still small voice, an impression that you're given that God has loved you through Christ. And so, therefore, every fact is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Both your conscience examining the word of God, examining your lifestyle, seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifest in your life over time, and the witness of the Holy Spirit confirms that, yes, you are a child of God. So this gives us a hopeful perspective, and we're going to close with this. The deep assurance which comes from the Holy Spirit is given for a specific reason. It is to form the uh, foundation for responses to anything that should happen to us in life. And uh, it gives us armor to withstand the attacks of the evil one against things like joy, hope, uh, peace, uh, tranquility, charity to our brothers. We're not envious because we're not fighting a rat race any longer. And this actually is extremely important. It informs responses to everyday happenings. Now, I don't know if this is the case that God had intended to do this, but I have not broken a string on my guitar in three years. When I was setting up for worship today, 
I, uh, the guitar was just sitting there and the string broke on its own. Usually a string will break while you're playing it because that's when you're adding tension. But I was just sitting here talking with Jordan. I looked over at my other guitar and a string just bam. And then I went downstairs during the Sunday school and tried to put on three different backup pairs of strings that I had. And I've never had a string break while I was putting it on the guitar. That's pretty weird. Three sets of strings broke while I was putting it on that guitar. And I had to use a backup guitar that I used to play with. Now, I don't know if God had intended for this to happen on a day where I was preaching about proper responses that are built on faith, but it sure is timely. Uh, you know, in the moment, I've got the, I've got the temptation to worry. I've got the temptation to try to remedy it on my own. And, you know, the Psalms say the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. We do what we can, and yet we trust in a great and powerful God to bring, to bring the win in at the end of the day. And so this doctrine of assurance is the foundation for what Paul says at the end of the chapter. For I am sure, now this is already after like five or ten verses of absolutely amazing confidence, and then he caps them all with this, Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love, of, the love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the totality of this list? He's saying spiritual things, existence itself, death or life, uh, things that are currently going on, nor things that are going on in the future, uh, ge geometry, like you know, the powers of space-time, uh, height, depth, anything else in creation, none of that can separate us from the love of Christ. That is total. Nothing can separate us. And so, so that is what forms our assurance. That is what the goal of our assurance is, is supreme confidence in the love of God. And so let us today honor and thank the Holy Spirit for his precious and invaluable work in accomplishing salvation and confirming us that we are children of God. Let's pray.